powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello there, hey gang, hi, hey, 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 hey. Thanks ever so much for tuning in. Welcome young and old, friends and foes, to the newest episode of the Derek Duvall Show. Yes, that talk show you have seen scribbled on the walls of toilet stalls all over the planet. So glad you decided to take a chance and see that, yes, we are indeed real. I am Derek, and welcome to another 45 minutes of your life that will be well spent with me. So, what is new, you ask? Mrs. Duvall and I have begun to watch all the nominees for this year's Academy Awards. Let me be the first to say this because a very good friend of mine put the word out into the parish the other day that I am a movie snob. Yes, I am very particular, but what I am about to say comes right from the heart. I've watched Spencer and The Power of the Dog, and all I can say is, what a bunch of boring crap! I could barely get through Power of the Dog. I love me some Benedict. I really do. But this just bored me to tears. We will be continuing with our venture. But man, overall, this was just an amazing waste of my time. And don't even get me started on Spencer. Bloody hell. Wales Rugby has the weekend off. But we'll be back at it next weekend playing England in Twickenham. Should be a good match. Could go anyway next Saturday. I want to thank our last guest, the amazing Eric King, for being such a good sport. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him, and the episode was a huge success. So, welcome to episode 44. We welcome to the show another personal friend of mine. We have with us Tulsa comedy staple Miss Shauna Blake is on the show. Yes, she'll be talking about her humble origins, getting started in the comedy business, her success. And yes, we even tackle some hard-hitting issues in the comedy scene. Get ready for a great interview. So let's just bring her out. Ladies and gentlemen of Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome to the show all the way from Tornado Alley, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the one and only Miss Shauna Blake. All right, Shauna, good evening. Welcome to the show. How was your weekend? Uh, it was really good. Yeah, I, I got to see some family. Uh, I did a show back uh, back closer to where I'm from. So it was, it was really fun. I like to start my interviews with the same question that reflects these crazy times we're living in. How has it been for you to yeah. navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh Lord. Uh, <laughs> it was great. I loved every minute of it. No, it, it was tough. Um, like most people, of course it was tough. I felt really lucky. I was really lucky that I was able to uh, work from home. So I wasn't too stressed out about a lot of it at the very beginning of quarantine. But yeah, it's been weird. It's been weird doing shows uh, online or not doing shows at all during a lot of it. But overall, you know, I've been I've been what I would call lucky. So mm -hmm. it's not been too bad. It's always fun to take things back to the beginning. Where were you born and raised? Oh, well, I was born technically in Arkansas, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I was a Sparky's kid, uh, a little hospital there in Fort Smith. I was raised in a, a community called Redland, Oklahoma. It's a place that has like three churches and no post office. It's a dirt road area. 
So that is where I was raised, is out in the middle of nowhere, essentially in Oklahoma. Do you have any fun memories from attending Northeastern State University? Oh, absolutely. I really, I really loved going to NSU. Um, the QUA, as you will, that's what we refer to it as always in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, yeah, I really, I met a lot of really great friends that I still have today there um, and some mentors in the communication program. That's what I went to get my degree in was um, communication, liberal arts. Got my undergrad in journalism. And then I was basically like, oh, well, I'm about to graduate, but I have no idea what I'm going to do. And a mentor there told me, like, why don't you just get a master's degree? And I was like, I don't think I'm going to need that. And uh, I went ahead and did it just because I didn't want to graduate yet. And I was able to get a scholarship, that, which was really, really nice. So, yeah, I got my communication degree at NSU in Tahlequah and made a lot of, lot of good connections there that I still hang out with those people today. Very, uh, a couple of famous alumni went there. Um, I know somebody who was Carrie Underwood's roommate. So, yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah, she she came back and did a concert there the first, my freshman year. So she was, um, I don't know how many years ahead of me she would have been, like when she was going to school there. But the, the year that I started at NSU, at NSU, she came back and did a concert there. I remember everyone's real jazz that she was back. Which brings to the next question. At what age did you decide you actually wanted to teach? That was actually post graduation I um well when I was little when I was a little kid I would line up all my stuffed animals and make them be my students and I you know it was I liked to play teacher when I was a little kid and sometimes force my brother to be a student which he did not love uh the stuffed animals were a little bit more malleable than him but I used to do that a lot and it was you know kind of a, a thing that I used to like to do because my aunt um, is an educator as well. I always looked up to her. Uh, but then as far as like actually deciding I wanted to teach was uh, about a year after I actually graduated. So I was working at the Army Corps of Engineers and doing administrative assistant work, which was a really good job, but it just turned out to be something that I wasn't really that passionate about. I wasn't really, it wasn't really what I went to school for, what I wanted to do. And so that was when I kind of, there was an opening at a community college near where I lived at the time. And I just was like, I'm going to apply and just see what happens. I ended up getting that job. And so haven't looked back since then. How many years have you been teaching now? Uh, I think this is my fifth or sixth year now. Yeah, I think this is my sixth year teaching. So then it brings me now to the inevitable question. What took you from that brings you now to stand-up comedy? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. So I, when I was in college, I took a bunch of creative writing classes because I was obsessed with the professor. I thought he was really hot. So I wanted to take his classes for that reason. And so I uh, I wasn't an English major, but I took all those classes. And I liked writing stories, but I mostly liked writing the dialogue and like making jokes. And then I had no plot, so I was not going to be the next great American novelist by any means. But I remember talking to him one time, you know, stalking him out at the bar. And he, you know, said to me, like, I, you're, you're very funny. You should do something with that. Like, your, your stories that you turn in are always, always funny. I was like, yeah, I, I do like writing, you know, funny dialogue, but that was about the extent of it. And then the year that I graduated college, I was like, well, I'm a class taker, right? Like I've always, I've always been a 
I'm one of those students that like, I like doing school. Like I was always like, I'm good at that. I know what I'm doing. You know, that's kind of my, my vibe. And I was like, I'm graduating. I'm not going to be taking any classes. What am I going to do? And I talked another friend of mine into going with me to Tulsa to take, to like do this little, like the comedy parlor downtown Tulsa that used to exist. It, it doesn't exist anymore, but it used to exist. Um, did a little like intro class session where it was like stand up, sketch writing, improv, like a little preview day. And we went and sat through that little preview day and uh, we were like, what class? I, I want to take one of these classes. And I convinced her to do stand up with me. And so we went to these classes and I took this class, about six week class over the summer, the summer after I graduated from college. And I just, it just took, right? So I just got hooked on it and wanted to keep doing it so that's kind of how I fell into stand-up was taking a taking another class and continuing it on after the class ended do you remember your first gig oh gosh I remember my first paying gig because I was like oh my gosh I'm getting money for this <laughs> my first gig was probably hosting an open mic at the VFW was co-hosting a gig an open mic at the VFW. I don't know if you can call that a gig, but it was my first like time someone was like, you should do this thing uh, that wasn't just going up at an open mic. And then my first paying gig was out in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I think it was a Veli Vell who has passed away, RIP. He was a great guy. He was a big, big part of the scene in Tulsa and the surrounding area. He booked me on my first paying gig. And I remember going out to this middle of nowhere town, which is you know right up my alley, and doing this little bar show where there was not that many people. And it, it seemed like we were not going to be their, their taste, but they all were such a great crowd. And I remember there's a big, huge Corona blow up bottle there that we all took pictures <laughs> with. Um, but it was, it was a really, actually a really fun show. And that was my first time I ever got paid to do stand up. And I'll always remember that, remember that gig. So take us through an evening of stand-up. You know, do you have a pre-show ritual? Oh, I don't really. I um lately I'm so terrible. I'm usually coming in hot. Like I get there right about this time the show starts. All right. And um I'm just kind of like, okay, here I go. I usually my pre-show ritual is looking down at my notes app and trying to find out like, okay, what was the last time I did? 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever and how did that go and what should I change and doing a quick um, rearrangement of jokes on my notes app my notes app is just full of like a thousand notes that are like the same jokes in different orders and different amounts of time I always say I'm gonna go, I'm gonna organize myself so I know like this is 10 minutes every time but I never do that and then I just kind of usually depending on like if I'm hosting I will get there earlier and kind of you know make sure that I know like everyone's credits and things like that Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm not hosting, then I will just kind of watch the show usually and see how it goes and see like what jokes are hitting. That's the benefit of going, mm -hmm. you know, in the middle or at the end, <laughs> you can see like what kind of jokes the crowd <laughs> crowd is liking or hating and be able to kind of adjust what you thought your set was going to be based on that. Because I always, you know, there are different philosophies for stand-up, but I want the crowd to have a good time and to like me and to have fun. So if there are any jokes that I'm like, oh, they they hate these jokes, then I would I would not do the ones that are the similar in a similar vein as those for my set. <laughs> so how does it feel to have your name announced and you walk out into the spotlight? I 
love it. That's why I do it. I mean, not why I do it, but that's a big part of why I do it. You know, I always love that energy of, you know, going on stage and just trying to find out what's going to happen because it feels like, you know, no matter how many times you do this, or at least my perspective is like, you can do the same set, like the same jokes in the same order 50 times in a row, and maybe you'll kind of get bored with yourself, but it's different every time, depending on the crowd's reaction, how they're feeling, like what's going to happen, if they're going to like you, if they're going to hate you, if you need to go faster or slower or adjust your pacing. So I always like that feeling of like, what's about to happen? You know, when they call, when they call my name, I'm like, okay, here we go. Like something is about to happen. And I always really like it because I'm, I'm a person that doesn't pay attention in my regular life very much. I don't think of myself as being super present all the time, but I, I always am on stage because it's like, this is happening in real time. I'm looking at the crowd. I'm seeing what they're thinking and, and kind of interacting with them in real time. And it makes you like really focus in on the moment that is happening at the time. So I always like that feeling of like anticipation of what's going to happen. You know, it's funny. I had some people I told you were going to be on the show and some people, you know, look you up and what have you. And they wrote in a few mm-hmm. questions and there's, there's a few, I picked some of the best ones. And one of them is this, I, mean, okay. I, I've been, I asked this to a musician friend of mine a couple of weeks ago and, and he gave me a great answer. Is applause and laughter a drug? Oh, that's a good question. In a way, I think it could be like, I, I have never, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't think of it as a, as a drug in the same sense that like, I'm going to go through withdrawals if I don't get it, or I'm going to, you know, do anything I can to get it. I, I don't necessarily think that from my perspective, I operate that way. You know, when the, when the shutdown happened and shows couldn't happen, I did miss doing stand up, but I was like, I'm fine. You know, like I was okay. Like I, I liked, I love doing stand up. I want to do it, but it wasn't one of those things that was like, I am suffering, you know, physically, mentally from, which I did do some zoom shows and I did still do some things that were creative. So I had that outlet in a different way, but a similar vein. So I'm not sure if I didn't have it at all, what I would have felt. But I, I think in a way it is because it's something that you constantly seek out, right? Like I, I do, like I will drive hours <laughs> to do, you know, 30 minutes of stand-up comedy and drive hours back, you know, which a lot of people who don't necessarily do that or, or get that feeling from it would think would be a bizarre situation, like a strange thing to do. So, you know, I'm going to say yes and no, (laughs) in a way, yes, but I wouldn't say it's as intense as a, an actual craving or physical need. It's more just a, I want this and I want to do everything I can to make it happen, but not anything to make it happen. What would you describe? Obviously, like I said, I've known a lot of the comedians in here in town. What would you say would be Mm -hmm. like, do they draw on? Is it observational humor? Is it, you know, you're de- is it something you maybe you're dealing with, you know, mental health that, that you can make funny or some of that? Is that like a process of things that work or is it just, mm-hmm. obs- or is it just basically like, I, I find this funny, I'm just going to talk about it. For, well, I kind of do both. Like for me personally, I would say most of the time I'm, I'm really bad at writing jokes. Like every time I do anything where I think I should talk about how I do jokes, I go, oh, I should be better because I don't, 
you know, there are some people who are amazing and, and very disciplined and like will sit down and write, you know, every single day. And I admire that so much. Me, I, it's more like if an idea kind of either falls into my mind fully formed, I'm like, this is a joke. This is a full bit. Or something that happens that I go, okay, later this might be funny when I'm no longer, you know, embarrassed or sad or angry about it. Um, and I have some distance from it and I can, <laughs> I can really think about it. Or, you know, sometimes it's like, I will just, at this point, something will happen and I'll just say it on stage and open mic or something and see if anyone nods or laughs or anything. And if no, if everyone's like, absolutely not, then I go, okay, that's not a thing. That's not universal. That's not <laughs> anything someone cares about. Uh, <laughs> good to know guys. And then if, if people are kind of like interested in it or intrigued in it, I'm like, okay, well, I, that's something I should focus on and try to like write into a more appropriate like joke structure. But usually mine, I'm very like personal experience, my real life kind of jokes. I know that they're in the scene, there's a, a wide variety, you know, of, of that kind of thing, like personal life stuff, of observations, of quick one-liners, of longer stories. I think it's, it's pretty diverse in the types of styles mm -hmm. that people have, um, which is which is really great to see. One of the things I always remember most, especially, like I said, with the great, the truly, truly legends of the business, I remember one time people mm -hmm. can recognize that a joke is just complete dud and they can just seamlessly segue into another segment. And in my opinion, yeah. no one ever did that better than George Carlin. And I remember mm -hmm. one special in particular that I remember is he started talking about picking scabs and he went on uh -huh. three minutes of picking scabs and, the, and the, he was killing it beforehand. And then the audience kind of yeah. went quiet. And he's like, you guys don't like that. So moving on. And he just perfectly segue right into the next mm -hmm. phrase, into the next segment, which is the legendary people who should be killed segment. And um, yeah, yeah. And I, I just, it's amazing that he's just the way he saw that. He just segued beautifully away from that. Yeah. Like I can tell I'm losing you. Here we go. Uh, yeah. I think that's a superpower, you know, to, oh, yeah. you have to be pretty self-aware and just aware of your surroundings in general when you're on stage to be like, okay, well, people don't like this. And so like, you can't panic and go, Oh, I got a bail and like, hurry, hurry, hurry joke because then people get uncomfortable. You know, I like, there's so many different ways, you know, to handle it. People, some people call attention to it like that example, right? Like, oh, you're not into this. Or you make it like kind of a joke about how people don't like it. Yeah. Um, and some people just move on, you know, and just shift gears. Uh, and then some people, of course, like double down and just like <laughs> go harder into it and, and get mad at the audience for not liking it. So everyone has different, you know, methods for how to deal with like silence or, you know, something like that. So I think that's always interesting. Do you try to keep your set fresh or do you just have like a, a list of like material that you know that works you can always fall back on? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Kind of both. Like I, you know, I'll go through slumps and I'm like, oh, I'm just not writing anything, you know, and I'll, I'll do the same kind of jokes, maybe in a different order or a different, you know, pull, it depends on how long I'm doing. You know, if I'm doing 10 minutes, I can pull this 10 minutes and this 10 minutes or whatever. Or, you know, if I'm going out of town, you know, I know that it's unlikely that people have heard these jokes. I might go to some old ones I know are good, you know, because I want to get booked again in that town, for example. Um, but if I'm staying local, then I, you know, I try. I try to, to do some new stuff, at least at the top or in the middle. Usually if I'm trying something new, 
I will do it in the middle of my set, right? Because I'm, I'm like, okay, I have to start with something that I know people are going to like or recognize or like get to know me really quickly, right? Especially when I'm doing a short set. If I'm doing like 10 minutes. Open with something that's like, okay, they know who I am really quickly so that we can just like get into it. Right. And then I'll do new stuff in the middle if I'm trying out new jokes, trying to keep things fresh. And then I'll usually close with something that I know people like, right? So the last thing that they hear is not like a risk or a gamble. So that's kind of how I usually do it. I want to try new things. I usually just put them in the middle. Okay, Deval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break. That gives you a chance to grab that next tasty beverage, stand up, do some amazing and self-rewarding deep stretches, and, of course, do some of those amazing deep breathing exercises, you know, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Listen to an amazing PSA from two friends of the show, and we'll be right back. Well, fighting won't stop it. When people disagree, sometimes they need someone who's not involved to settle things. Johnny Kadum, he's not rooting for either team. Good thinking. Instead of fighting when you disagree, look for a better way. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. This is Country Boy for One My Black History. And if you listen to my podcast, this is some of the things that you will enjoy. The term Jim Crow derives from early 19th century minstrel shows. It was a popular form of entertainment, which is the predecessor to vaudeville. The shows consisted of a primarily white song and dance performer crudely mimicking African-Americans for the enjoyment of white audiences. One of the earliest and most famous was Thomas Daddy Rice, who devised a strutting, dancing character supposedly mimicking a prancing crow, and the character became known as Jim Crow. And if this is the type of content that you enjoy, you can find more content like this at OneMikeHistory.com. What's going on, everyone? This is your girl, Julene, host of It Goes Down in the PM. We talk about everything from work, motherhood, local celebrities to comic books tune in every friday at wine o'clock to find out what really goes down in the pm Hey, this is Country Boy from the One Mike History Podcast. And in these times, I want to remind you about nuclear safety. When you hear the attack warning, you and your family must take cover at once. Do not stay out of doors. If you are caught in the open, lie down. And now here is a reminder about fallout warnings. When fallout is expected, you will hear three bangs in short succession, like this. In some areas, the warning may be given by means of three gongs, like this. Or you may hear three whistles, like this. All these three types of sounds indicate that fallout is expected. When you hear them, you must stay in the safest position in the house. Keep the door shut. Do not go outside the house until you are told it is safe. Here is the all-clear warning. When you hear this sound, you can leave your cover. 
but keep listening for further warnings. Thanks for your attention, and now back to the Derek Duvall Show. Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. Don't you feel better after those stretches? Want to give a huge thanks to my man Country Boy at One Mic for helping keep us safe during these scary times. Look for our episode with him coming very soon to the show. All right, let's get back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the absolutely amazing Miss Shauna Blake. So my question to you is, um, with the way the world is right now, what is the most dangerous thing about writing jokes at the moment? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, I don't really think of it as dangerous necessarily. I think of it just like, I mean, like if you're doing something at an open mic, that's kind of what people might consider controversial or edgy. Um, that can be a little bit risky just because you're working it out, right? Like you're trying to figure out what is funny or where is like people talk about the line, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, I think that to me, it doesn't really feel dangerous as long as you are being who you are and you're not, I mean, the whole punching up, punching down conversation, I kind of get, that's my kind of worldview on it. It's just like, don't try to be actively hateful and you should be okay. It's kind of my theory. Like sometimes if people just literally don't know, like if you're ignorant, like if you don't understand like what you're saying is offensive, then hopefully someone will be able to kind of talk to you about why what you're saying is maybe less than ideal. And then if you don't want to take that feedback, if you want to double down and like be aggressive about it, then that can be problematic. But if you're like, Oh, okay. I see that. Like I'm open to change. I don't know if that's what you mean, but that's, that's kind of like my theory on it. It's just like, I I would say, I don't really usually feel afraid of anything that I'm writing because I'm like, well, most of what I'm saying is going to be my perspective. And like, I don't try to actively hurt anyone's feelings because some Sometimes jokes feel like that's what they're doing. It's like I have a perspective and I'm trying to like harm someone else. And as long as you're not trying to actively do that, typically people are going to understand like, oh, because the world changes so fast, right? Like the terminology, language, like things that you could say five years ago or not could say, but things that you would say that wouldn't be seen as anything like wouldn't be knowledgeable to you like you wouldn't understand that there was anything wrong with it right might we might know better now right and so so there's definitely an opportunity for correction i think when you try new things obviously i grew up you know listen you know comedy like i mean i loved richard Pryor, i love eddie murphy george carlin is I think probably the, the top of the pile for the greatest comedians ever. Mm-hmm. But then you got the people on yeah. him, like Andrew Dice Clay, you know, there was mm-hmm. no way Andrew Dice Clay could do his set today. He, it, right. just, it was, it would be impossible. Uh, I don't think that yeah. ever be, it would be no coming back from that. Same with Richard Pryor. I right. don't think Richard Pryor could do his set today mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it's like the things that we found funny, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you just, it's not, kosher to find it funny today if that's right makes any sense yeah and i think that there's things that you can like look at and go like oh yeah like i see what they were doing at that time right like what was considered progressive or shocking or interesting or a new perspective then like it doesn't mean like you have to retroactively cancel someone and be like oh they're terrible right right like it was just like that was what was happening then and it's like if you know better you do better you know you, you evolve your language your choices like evolve right. and so i think as long as you're willing to do that that's mm-hmm. that's my perspective is like you have to be willing to 
open your mind a little bit and like hear other perspectives and see like if what you're saying is truly harming people then maybe you can adjust some language or change some things and and fix it you know so again we had some people writing some questions uh this was a really good mm -hmm. one i really enjoyed this one what's the best piece of advice you have ever gotten in the comedy business oh that is a good question mm. i can't recall a specific like person taking me aside and being like this is the advice i have for you but just kind of like what i've picked up and maybe what i've heard sometime i don't know if it was given to me or not or just like i heard it on a podcast or something like that everything conglomerates together in my head but I think the best piece of advice is like be yourself mm -hmm. and put yourself in your jokes as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Because I think like it's it's much harder to accidentally, you know, steal someone else's joke <laughs> if it's about you. Right. And it's a lot harder for someone else to steal it, right? Like not that I'm worried about that or thinking about that, but it, if you are the center of, not like narcissistically, like I'm the center of everything, but if you are the central character in your jokes, and it's like from your perspective, then it's, it's going to be a lot fresher and more unique because no one else is going to have those same experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think that like just being who you are on stage, and maybe it takes a while to figure that out, but once you do, if you lean into just being who you are, I think that's kind of the best advice that I've ever heard, whether that was given to me or just I picked it up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your stand-up heroes? Mm, that's a good question, too. I'm so bad, too, at, like, I don't watch enough stand-up. I, I feel like that's something that I always say to myself I should do more of, but then I get nervous. I'm like, what if I actually start writing all these jokes and thinking that they're my own? Yeah, that's, um, I'm curious about that. <laughs> yeah. Like when I first started, before I started doing stand-up, I really, really liked Amy Schumer. Mm -hmm. I would say that like when I was in my early to mid-20s, that was kind of like, oh, like I was really, I wrote a rhetorical criticism in college about one of her stand-up specials. <laughs> I remember like, like writing an academic paper about her. Um, and I used to really like her stuff. Not that I don't like it now, but I, I liked her sketch show a lot. I thought that was really great um, inside Amy Schumer. So I liked her. I like John Mulaney a lot. I like mm -hmm. storytelling comics, like Nate Bargassi. I like him a lot. Those kind of, uh, those kind of like autobiographical storytelling comics are, are really who I, who I enjoy the most. Do you get into Norm Macdonald? You know, I, I, he's someone I always like saw sketches of and like, oh, he's so funny, but I never really like watched, like consumed all of his stuff. Like I haven't watched a lot of his stand up. So you yeah. have opened for some pretty marquee names in the comedy world. Who was your favorite? And yeah. what do you remember most being a part of that person's show? Oh, that's a great question. I I feel like I really, really liked doing the um when I opened for David Tell and Jeff Ross on the Bumping Mike tour. Mm -hmm. I remember just really feeling like that was a big show for me because those those are really big names. Uh David Tell is like so respected in the comedy community because he's so funny. Like he just, what he does is so good because I've seen him live, you know, several times. I, I got to open for him a couple of different times since it's different over the years. Mm -hmm. And every time I watch him live, I'm just like, oh, like this is why comics love him because he just does it so well. What he does, he does so well. <laughs> and 
we, you know, I was watching him. It was great. The, the Bumping Mike's tour was probably the biggest stage I've ever been on. Uh, just like physically large and like the room, the capacity that it held was the biggest. Like, I remember like thinking I had to sprint to get across the stage, the middle like, to, to get on, to get, to get going. And so I remember like, being there and thinking like this is show business you know for my small town self like this is big like this is it was at Thackerville um at the big like the largest casino in the world that down on the yeah Windsor at the Texas Oklahoma border um and I remember just thinking like wow like after the show we went we went out to the steakhouse and we ate steak and like all these people were coming up to Jeff and Dave and just being like oh my god I love you you know and and just being at that table, I was like, I don't know if I belong here, <laughs> but I really like that I am here, you know? And so I think that was one of the best experiences that I have had, being able to do that. Uh, and they were both very, very nice, very kind to me, um, very kind to everyone that I saw them interact with. You know, it was it was great. So how would you describe the comedy community? Are, are you guys pretty tight-knit? Yeah, I would, I would, I think so. I think I, I love the Tulsa comedy community. I think that, you know, all of us are pretty close. I will say it's, it's been interesting because, you know, there are so many new people that have kind of come out, what I would consider new people the last couple of years, you know, like when everything shut down, we were, you know, apart from each other. And there were, there are a lot of new people that have like come up that have been doing shows that are like oh I didn't know you two years ago at all mm-hmm. um but they all seem very nice and very eager to perform yeah I I love everyone in the Tulsa comedy scene you know like I feel like we from my perspective I may be out of the circles of anything that's you know problematic but uh mostly get along and and support each other really well so the, the second part of this question comes from a reader and I, I talked about mm-hmm. this earlier before we came on. So I want to make sure you were okay with it. But mm-hmm. the question is this, there's been a lot of focus in the last couple of years, sexual harassment in the comedy community. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's an unfortunate thing that certainly happens. I, you know, I have felt, you know, here and in this community, local community for myself, pretty, again, I, I don't, it's sad that I have to say lucky that I haven't had a lot of negative experiences with that. It should just be standard, but it feels like I'm lucky to have been able to get by with that. You know, I will say that I know it happens. I know it has harmed people and it has, it has diminished, you know, women, especially from going to open mics and going to just to pursue stand up. You know, if, if you start open mics and all the men uh, and the comedy scene try to hit on you inappropriately or aggressively, like it's gonna, you know, uh, discourage people from, from attending and trying to pursue this. And that's very upsetting to me. I have been pretty fortunate that I haven't really experienced a lot of that directly. I will say that just, you know, coming back from the pandemic, shutting down, my personal experience, I came back to host my open mic that I was hosting before everything shut down. And there were a significant amount of new open micers doing rape jokes Mm. at the open mic. And 
I was put in a really tough position or what I thought was a tough position of trying to shut that down. And I had some pushback from, I wouldn't call these comedians that are in the scene actively working. I would say that these are open micers, which there is a difference. You know, people who are people who are actively pursuing comedy and like in the community and doing shows and, and doing things versus coming to open mics sometimes. And I would classify these people as the latter half. Hmm. But it was it was hard because I looked around and I was like, this is at the time one of the only open mics in Tulsa run by a woman and there are no women coming to this open mic and I was like probably because of all these jokes and I remember like trying to be nice and like having a conversation with them and that didn't seem to work and so I was being harsher and I had to finally just be really rude what I would consider rude is be like okay if you do any more jokes of this nature um even a joke I don't like you're banned from this mic you know but I had to take a hard line because I don't want to tolerate that kind of what I would consider just trash um, at my open mic right. because there's few times that you have the authority to shut something like that down. And I was like, I have it in this moment because it was the open mic that I was running at the time. Um, and so I had to shut it down. So I don't know that that would fall under sexual harassment, but I know that I, I was getting a lot of pushback from those men. Um, and at one time to, to illustrate how bad it was, I had to go up on stage and say, all right, well, we've hit our rape joke quota of the night. Like, Oof. that's it for me. Like, no more of this, right? And there was a table of, like, patrons there that were, like, what I would consider adult frat boys, not to disparage frat boys, but they were, they had a look about them. And they all um, chanted one more rape oh. at me um, when I was on stage. I was like, well, that's not the kind of energy I want to bring into the room right now. And so... It certainly gets dicey. It certainly gets tough when there are people who are like, I'm going to be edgy, you know, and do this joke. And I'm like, you're not Anthony Jeselnik. Like, you're not doing this appropriately. You're not doing this as a character. Like, it just feels like you want to say this into a microphone, and that's not okay. Yeah. So it certainly happens. Um, and it's really, really unfortunate when it does. But Personally, with actual other comedians in the scene, I have felt like, from my perspective, that has not happened to me. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So yeah, yeah. wow, that's that's wow. I have yeah. no words. That's very that's very powerful. Yeah, so. it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to take in. It's it's like that's why women don't do stand up and don't go to yeah. open mics because it's sketchy as hell. Yeah, sometimes. That, that's, yeah. that, that that hurts you. That hurts my heart to hear that. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's let's take it through again. Take us through um this is a personal question of mine because I I get a kick out of this. Take us through uh -huh. dance second a day for a month. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is so much fun. Yeah. Uh me and my wife, we just yeah. we think they're just it's the most it's like awesome. You're like you're living your best life. We love it. Oh yay, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. Like that is something that I find really fun. I, a couple of years ago, I was just like, you know what I really like to do, but I don't do very often is dance. Like, it's not, I'm not a professional in any means, right? Like, I'm just being silly. But I started this thing, it was like a, like a New Year's resolution type thing, where I was like, I want to dance every day. And then I realized something about myself, 
maybe it's from doing comedy, maybe it's from like the content, you know, creation society that we live in. But I was like, you know, if I record myself, I'll, I'll like do it, you know, like I'll, I'll won't want to break the chain, you know, and I'll do it every single day and it will help me like stay on track. And so I started recording it and then I would look back at the end of the year and be like, oh, I danced, like I did it every day. And then I started posting it on Instagram <laughs> because I thought, well, that'll be silly. And like, maybe it will inspire someone else to do something silly, you know, uh, to do every day. And I think it adds a little bit of joy. Like every day I get to, you know, put on some song, whatever I'm feeling in the mood for that day and just dance. And I usually dance for at least half of not all of the song. I record it and I just take a little snippet. I have an app called one second every day and it mashes them all together at the end of the month or the year or whatever you want to do. And it, it just shows like one little second. So it's like different outfits and different uh, songs. And yeah, I just, I just think it's really fun and it helps keep me accountable. <laughs> if I record it and like, don't break the chain, I'll do it. And so, yeah, if anyone wants to dance, a silly dance, like you should do it every day. It makes you happier. It's just, it's awesome. Uh-huh. It's, it just brings beacon of positivity out there. Yeah. Oh, Take good. that what I'm you will, but we really enjoy that. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, Brings me to my next question. What does mm-hmm. the future look like for Shauna Blake? Mm. That's a great question. Well, I just try to avoid all the time. I just don't think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I so far, like right now, and it's 2021, the end of the year, I want to, I, I really like teaching. So I want to keep doing that and get getting better at that. And I really love doing stand-up. I want to keep doing that. Um, I think as far as like comedy future goes, I am thinking uh, summer of 2022, I would really like to travel more for comedy. Mm. So I'm going to start trying to put together either like a, what you could call a tour if you want to like driving, you know, just doing it in different cities trying to find contacts because, you know, I've been doing it long enough that I have some contacts in several different cities um, across the country at this point, or trying to, you know, reach out to someone I've gotten to open for or worked with and ask them to, you know, consider me for some position, which I'm really bad at doing, but something I could consider doing. So I think being more intentional about trying to get booked for comedy is my future because I'm not great at that right now i'm not proactive as much as i should be mm-hmm. um and that's something i want to do and then i also want to probably in 2022 take some sort of acting class i think would be really fun because i i really enjoy the idea of performing in a different way like comedic styles but i know nothing about acting but i would really like to mm-hmm. um get better at that so that's kind of my thought process right now it's like Pursuing stand-up more intentionally and trying to broaden my skill set a little bit as a performer. Is the end goal a Netflix special? Oh, I would love that, 100%. Like, I know I got to open for, you mentioned earlier, I got to open for some cool people. Um, I got to open for Taylor Tomlinson a few years ago, and she is crushing it right now. She has a great Netflix special called Quarter Life Crisis. And she was so funny. And I just look at her and she's younger than me. And I'm like, you bitch, not really. But, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh my God, you're so funny. Um, and you're only like, at this point, probably 27 or something. And 100%. Like, I was like, that's, that's the t- career 
trajectory goal, like a young woman trying her best and like making it. I love that. I love to see that happen. So hundred percent would love that. Um, the, when I saw the stand up, Janelle James is someone else I've gotten to open for. And she was on that. She was so funny. She's if your listeners have not heard of her, Janelle James is hilarious. I may have. Yeah. She's so funny. She was at blue realm a couple of years ago, blue Realm comedy festival. She did like a show on Netflix called the standups, I think. And then she did like 15 minutes. And I was like, Oh, if I could just get 10, 15 minutes on some sort of platform that people could see me, I would love that. Hmm. You know, it's funny. My wife, um, you know, staunch feminist, loves feminine comedy. Um, she told mm-hmm. me she discovered um, Eliza Schlesinger. Am I saying her name right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she discovered her and she watched all her specials, laughed yeah. in that beautiful laugh that she has. Yeah. She, she's coming to Tulsa, I think, in April. We're, we're thinking about maybe going to go check her oh, out. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. Someone else, like, I, I've definitely seen some of her stuff, but I haven't watched all of it. Someone else recommended her to me. I was like, I have to watch her elder millennial special. I have to watch that. <laughs> I'm so glad, like I said, we I know you and I know you, the community that you guys all run around. You guys mm-hmm. are just some of the nicest people in the world. And as yeah. someone who's not a comedian, and when I get to hang out with you guys, you all make me feel yeah. really welcome. And it, it means the world to me. I'm uh, so happy to hear that. Uh, That's what we want. So can you tell my listeners how best to follow your adventures online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am Shauna Blake on Facebook, S-H-A-W-N-A, Shauna Blake. Uh, I have a page on Facebook that you can like and follow. I have a website, shaunablake.com, S-H-A-W-N-A.com, Blake.com. And uh, on Instagram, I'm at shaunapants247. <laughs> so if you want to see the dance videos, follow me on Instagram. That's where I post those. Um, I hardly ever post on Twitter, but I'm at Blake on Twitter as well. Nice. So yeah, the website is probably the best place is all those things are linked there. So shaunablake.com. Nice. I like to end my interviews with the same question. It's my favorite question. Okay. If the entire mm-hmm. planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one mm-hmm. thing you would want to say to the people of earth? I would say to the people of earth, make sure that you laugh every day mm. because life is short. And while there are many serious things that we have to do and that we need to do, I think it's important that you make sure that you're laughing every single day because that's also important. Nice. All right, Shauna, thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on today. This has been a real Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. Yeah, it's been swell. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And just like that, we come to the end of our episode. I want to thank the amazing Shauna Blake for taking the time to come on the show. It's always a blast when I can interview friends of mine, as I don't get to see them or hang out with them very often, especially with COVID and all that. So Shauna has an amazing journey ahead of her. And if anyone knows someone at Netflix or Comedy Central, tell them to check Shauna out. They won't regret it. It's a safe bet. We've got another amazing episode coming up very soon. I am so excited for you to hear it. Um, want to give a massive shout out to one of my favorite darts players, the bad boy Welshman himself and world number one, Gerwin Price, for taking out not just one, but two nine dart finishes in one evening. That was a hell of a moment and one of the greatest nights in the history of the game as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of Wales, Wales will again, as I mentioned earlier, play England on Saturday and boy am I ready for it. Uh, I got Mrs. Duval a Wales jersey to commemorate their event. It's so cool. Uh, I get to watch it on my 120-inch in surround sound. I am pumped, absolutely pumped. 
On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you, be safe, get the vaccine, and don't be afraid to laugh at yourself from time to time. No star, God bless, and see you very, very soon, planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.